As you noticed, probably some of you did, maybe some of you didn't, I did not do a reading before or during the opening worship set, and that's actually because I wanted to have two longer sections of text that I'm going to read for us closer to and actually has part straight up of the message. So I want to read for us to begin with Zechariah chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. You guys ready? It should be on the board too. The top five answers are on the board. (laughs) Top 11 verses, I think, technically. All right. In the fourth year, King Darius... Sorry, start over again. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer to Regem Melech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months of the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and the Negev and the western foothills were, set, were settled? And the, Lord, the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. Amen. (coughs) Have you ever denied yourself? something good? You ever say no to something, not because there was something necessarily better to receive, but because you wanted to deny yourself? I'll bet you you have. I'll bet you most people here have at some point or another denied themselves something good. I just, about every parent here, I'll bet, has denied themselves something good. It's called that sweet, sweet sleep that you can get when you don't have little ones in your house, right? We are in context oftentimes to deny ourselves of good things, but this concept of self-denial is often met with a lot of rejection. We live in a culture of hedonism, (coughs) self-centered, self-seeking, self-indulging, self-gratifying society, where the pursuit of living the high life is the goal. You guys have seen those ads before, right? Oh, this is the high life. (laughs) The Miller ads, right? It's like that's the goal in any opportunity to participate in it is to be both embraced and quite honestly, the way we are with our social media, flaunted. When we have an opportunity to pursue that high life, my goodness, we are left in the situation in our culture to think we have to embrace every bit of it. Run after every moment of it. And then tell everybody about how awesome it is for us to have those experiences and probably how it's so sad that they can't join us. (laughs) You guys have seen that, right? 
participated with that in some capacity probably before. It's kind of become the goal in life. Self-gratifying high life. As a matter of fact, turning it down in our culture is oftentimes met with contempt. Sometimes even scorn. Why in the world would you deny yourself of any privilege opportunity for a good thing? Even the church, we seem to have lost the discipline of self-denial. Probably some people want to slap me right now for just talking about it. Self-denial? What are you talking about? No! That's not what God is up to. <laughs> yeah, you're already there, right? <laughs> There's a few reasons I think that this has happened in the church why we don't really embrace self-denial. We've become not just in the world, but of the world. Our theology has become influenced by our hedonistic society. We're conditioned to think that God would never call us to deny ourselves, which is, wow, scary to think that that's actually happening. I mean, you know, Jesus did say something like, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Did you get it? Deny, you must deny, you know? I mean, whoo. Another reason is that, honestly, self-denial can become and has become distorted and misappropriated at times. Because there's a, there's a right way to go about self-denial and a wrong way to go about it. Self-denial can become grotesque. When somebody denies oneself comfort by inflicting pain... Flagellation, beating people, beating themselves till they're bloody. I mean, that's like taking this to an extreme that I don't believe God has an intention for us to experience whatsoever. It's one of the ways that it has become really distorted, and I understand why the church would want to shy away from those kinds of ideas. It's also become, and it has been for a very long time, a matter of religious pride. Oh, I I deny myself. Hey, everybody, look at how gaunt my cheeks are. I've been fasting for weeks. <laughs> my skin is dry. Don't look so good. I'm very, very religious. Very pious. Oh, wow. Right? So people for that, <laughs> people for that reason, <laughs> they shy away from this idea of self-sacrifice. Of course, though, if we are to dismiss things that can be misappropriated because they can be misappropriated, we have to dismiss an awful lot of things. (laughs) Kind of everything, right? Like there isn't anything that we can't seem to twist out of shape. Good, bad, indifferent, we can find a way to make it bad or worse. (laughs) So that's really not an option is just to avoid it and dismiss it altogether. But there's one more reason I think that we experience the church's lack of embracing self self-denial, and that is, uh, it's it's too hard. (laughs) It's just too hard. You ever find that it's like really easy to eat a lot of food? (laughs) It's not nearly as easy to not eat much. (laughs) Isn't that really kind of strange? Like, we are really good at (laughs) having extra. Oh, I'll have that extra fourth piece of cake, (laughs) right? (laughs) But to say no to the first piece, doggone it, that is so hard. What is that? Self-denial is just hard. It just flat out is. I've come to believe, though, that the discipline of self-denial can, can 
be fruitful in many ways, many more ways than we really have, are going to have an opportunity to talk about tonight. But one way is that it reveals to us where the thing, if we choose to deny ourselves it, it can show us where that thing has been fit into our lives, sometimes inappropriately fit into our lives. And it affords us an opportunity to assess and, if need be, adjust where that even good thing is in our lives. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know about that. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever lost your cell phone? (laughs) Amanda. (laughs) We've had this conversation before, I think. Have you ever lost it? And how did you feel about having lost it? Yeah, you didn't willfully self-deny yourself access to your cell phone in that, but did you, not just because it was lost, but did you freak out at all because now all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I'm not going to be able to get a hold of my spouse. Oh, I don't know where my kids are. I don't know if I can get access to my Facebook page. I'm not going to know what's going on on social media. I don't know what I'm going to do. No? Not at all, right? Never. You don't feel that way at all. Apparently, you've not lost your cell phone ever, right? <laughs> so then, for a moment, just think about giving it up for a week. Oh, I couldn't do that. How would I get a hold of my wife? How would I check my social media? How would I take pictures? What would I do? Ah. Well, I was snakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get some parents out here, they're like, I think we're going to try this with our kids. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it starts to get real when we start talking about that kind of stuff. Or maybe uh, your television. Who can't watch NASCAR? What about about giving up, self-denying yourself access to the television during the Seahawks season? Right? Oh, no, that can never be a good thing. Never. How would I know how they're... Mm. Absolutely no. <laughs> well, you, yeah, you just have to deny yourself from it for the other days, right? That's a great idea, Darren. I like that, right? We'll go with that. See, what happens though is it starts when we do this, when we start to deny ourselves some of these even good things. It tells us where they are and where they're fitting into our lives. You see, like when we do think, when we when when we have things in our lives and we are willing to give them up. We learn a lot about how we're ordering our lives. We learn a lot about the pecking order of importance during, concerning different, even gifts that we've been given. And, and, and I think what's going on is that we discover where we've put the gift in front of the gift giver. We've come to rely on the things God has given us rather than on Him. I want to talk a little more about a specific form of self-denial. Denying oneself of food. I've already talked about it a little bit. Chocolate cake, I like. Actually, that cake this last week, that was like the best cake I think I've ever had in my life. Who, the mango cake? Have you ever had mango cake? Ooh, that is so good, wow. Never had anything like it. Anyway, thank you Jesus for mango cake. I'm sure there was no actual mango involved in that mango cake, but... Um, so did you stop the lack of sugar before? Yeah, uh, during. It's not, you know, it's, just, it's a different thing altogether. <laughs> so this denying oneself of food, it's called fasting. Fasting. 
and people do it for medical reasons. I'm here today to talk about the spiritual reasons that people do it. And by the way, I, see, I have no idea why they call it fasting, because if you've ever done it before, the time goes by super slow, right? I mean, it's like ridiculously slow. It takes like forever to get through that 24 hours or 72 hours or 40 days or whatever you're doing, right? Uh, not really. I do know why they call it fasting. We're actually going to talk about that for a minute. I actually love the imagery in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word literally for fasting, though it gets translated into English word fasting. It literally means to cover over one's mouth, right? It's like you're going to deny yourself food by covering over your mouth. That's the idea. In, in Greek, it's really profound. Dan, you're going to love this. It just means not eating. <laughs> kind of works, right? That's be the better way to translate it. Instead of calling it fasting, we just call it the spiritual discipline of not eating. That's literally what it, what, it, what it is. Now, where we get the word fasting from, the English word it has its roots in the Germanic languages, and it simply means uh, firm or to hold firmly. To hold, to, fast. to hold fast, to hold firm, right. Yeah, absolutely. So it became an expression of establishing a firm commitment or a pledge. So that's the idea, a firm commitment or pledge to deny yourself. And while the idea of fasting in that sense then as a firm commitment or a pledge, can be applied to things other than food. This is really important. Keep in mind that anytime you come across the word fasting in Scripture, it has one of those Hebrew or Greek words behind it, and it's always talking about food. Well, covering your mouth to not eat it or not eating it. So keep in mind that that's always what's going on. In, in other words, while it's okay to hold fast to a pledge to give things up other than food, what the Scriptures have in mind with fasting is abstaining from eating. Got it? Is that good? Cool? All right. So, what does Scripture have to say about fasting? I want to start with, what does Jesus have to say about fasting? Should we fast? That's the simple question. Does Jesus say we should fast or not fast? Should we cover over our mouths? Should we go without eating? There is no absolute command given by Jesus to fast. He just never straightforwardly says, you must go without eating. However, he assumes we will. Jesus says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, when they have received their reward in full, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to the Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So he says on two occasions in that section when you fast, he just assumes that you will. Yeah, Jesus assumes things, which totally obliterates that cliche about assuming things, right? Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah exactly, right? What do you, yeah. So, he assumes we will. He also says in Matthew 9, that was Matthew 6, by the way, in Matthew 9, he also says that his disciples will fast. He's approached by some of John's disciples and questioned as to why the Pharisees fast and why John's disciples fast, but that his disciples don't fast. And he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast, or then they will not eat. So 
since Jesus assumes we will, we can proceed. Too bad, otherwise we could go next door and eat. <laughs> right? This was a trick. I know, right? When we see fasting in the rest of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, we see fasting in three primary situations. Mourning, petition, and repentance. When Kat and I lived in Canada, we, we had our cat, Samantha, up there. And if you've never met Samantha, she's like, like 90 in cat years, or human years, she's like old now. She's nearly died on a number of occasions. But when we lived up there, we would make trips down to, the, in, down to the States to visit my family or Kat's family. And most of the time, we would leave Samantha, a cat, in Canada. And on this one particular occasion, we left her there for, I think, a week or something like that, four days. I don't remember how long it was. And, uh, and apparently, she became so distraught and so lonely and so mournful that she stopped eating. And she got, like, super sick. She was so close to dying because she went so long. Because she was mourning, apparently just missing Catherine, <laughs> not me. Um, can't imagine that. So what I'm getting at is that fasting, going without food, in its connection with mourning, is seen as kind of a natural thing in Scripture. Have you ever been in a time in your life in deep mourning and you've just not felt like eating. I certainly have been. Mourning, sorry, fasting in that is an expression of mourning, an expression of a soul's deep sense of loss and of struggle. Now, don't get me wrong. If you don't have that experience of not wanting to eat when you're mourning. There's nothing wrong with you. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just talking about how this connection is most likely made and how God has actually woven this idea kind of right into the fabric, not just of the human experience, but in all of creation, with our cat Samantha anyway. So there's this connection where fasting is an expression of our mourning and also an outworking of our mourning. We see fasting also as a part of, like I said, prayerful petition. We fast during times of petition for probably more reasons than we could even begin to imagine. But one thing it certainly does is freeze up all the time you would be eating to petition God and to pray. And another thing that happens in the midst of fasting, for those of you who may have done this before... For those of you who haven't, maybe, well, for those of you who have, you will know this. For those of you who haven't, this might be new information, I guess. You get this sharper sense of thought of everything. Like, you would think that not eating would make you loopy. And it kind of does, maybe, for a time. But after a while, you actually kind of get hyper-focused. You're not distracted. There's, like, your body is not having to process all that food, I guess. I don't know. But you really get hyper-focused. And you can become hyper-focused on petitioning in this sense, God, for whatever need there is going on in your life or in your community. We also see fasting, as I mentioned, as a part of repentance. Fasting is an expression of repentance. It's an expressed desire, a deep expression of a desire to experience God and to hear God. 
and to show your serious desire to change. Going without food is not, though, a matter of leveraging God. It should never be thought of as that. I mean, if that's how somebody is ever approaching fasting, they're on the, right, on the wrong foot right off the bat. It's never a matter of leverage. You can never say, well, God, since I went without eating for 24 hours, then you have to do X, Y, or Z. But rather, it's a display of a truly contrite heart, one that in some sense feels so sick over whatever it is they're repenting for that they feel not like eating. One of the examples we see of that is when Jonah goes to the Ninevites and this foreign king in chapter 3 declares a fast for the whole nation. Of course, God sees that they're for real about what they've done. This expression of their repentance through fasting, through going without food, shows what's really going on in their heart in this case. However, while these are some of the biblical contexts of fasting, none of these three things really rests at the heart of what fasting is all about. Fasting, not eating, at its essence, is about the pursuit of justice and mercy. I'll say that again. Fasting is at its essence about the pursuit of justice and mercy. Let me read for you again, this time from Isaiah chapter 58. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to the people in their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem angered and know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all of your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide for the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before me, before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. He will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with a yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, 
And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. There are a few common themes between the Zechariah text and the Isaiah text that I see. The first thing is that fasting reveals the state of one's heart. We talked about this a little bit already. In Zechariah, the people are wondering if they should continue to fast because they had been fasting for 70 years, two times a year. And in their estimation, despite 70 years of fasting, God has not seen them because He's not acted in the way that they wanted Him to act in light of their fasting. They were going through the motions, expecting their fasting to bring about some action by God. Well, God apparently expected it to produce some action in them. They were not fasting unto God. They were doing it unto themselves. And as the text tells us, their fasting was simply revealing that they were thinking evil of each other. That's what's going on in their hearts. They're fasting and the whole time they're thinking evil of each other, when in reality it's supposed to be about caring for one another. In Isaiah, it's a very similar thing. God's people were fasting and were also upset that apparently God did not see them. They even say it. Didn't you see us? We fasted. You didn't. What's going on? But God did see them. That's part of the point. He did see them. He saw that their fasting produced not justice, but rather quarreling and fighting. Or as he puts it, wicked fists. You ever been slapped with a wicked fist? Doesn't sound good. I think I have been, actually. No, I'm not looking at you, honey. <laughs> the hunger that fasting produced revealed an angered heart. In both cases, it was supposed to result in an outworking of justice and of mercy, of compassion and of love. As I said, fasting is at its essence about the pursuit of justice and mercy. Both of the texts, both of them make that point. I'll just read it for you again. Zechariah puts it this way. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the alien, or the poor. That's what God wants out of this experience. In Isaiah 58, I just read it. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? In both cases, God is closely, even inseparably, linking fasting with this sense of justice and this call to mercy. This again is what God is really after in us. If we approach fasting with any other desire, we're starting off on the wrong foot. We're getting it all messed up. If we're trying to do it because we want God to see how great we are, oh, we're wrong. He does not want 
a display of your personal piety or religiosity. He does not want you to stand before Him as the Pharisee in one of Jesus' parables stands before Him and states how awesome He is because He fasts two times a week. By the way, see Luke 18, verses 9 through 14 for that parable. That's the Pharisaical attitude. Look at me, God, I am just so awesome. That's countered to the tax collector who beats his chest and just simply asks God to have mercy on him, a sinner. Approaching fasting is some kind of a check mark on one's religious piety. It's fruitless. He wants you to grow in love. He wants you to grow in love through the experience. He wants you to grow in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And He wants you to grow in the second greatest commandment that is so much like it that you could just say it was one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up the law and the prophets. This is what God wants in us. But interesting, interestingly, in both Isaiah and Zechariah, the people were fasting, but it didn't produce in and of itself justice and mercy. It didn't produce anything good. It produced wicked fists and evil thoughts. Why? Well, at least in part, it's because food was in greater control of their lives than God was. They were looking to be sustained by the gift, not even recognizing nor appreciating the giver of that gift. If you're giving up something that's really good in your life and you don't recognize that it's been given to you as a gift, you do everything you have to do to clamor for it. Or at least to want something in return for the very thing you're giving up. But the thing that God wants from the very thing we're giving up is for others to be loved. For others to be cared about. So what happens if we fast? What happens if we give up food and we have that experience of finding our hearts in a place of angry fist turning? <laughs> Let me just ask a question. How many here have fasted in their lives? And you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. But... And how many of you have had an experience of, for a time at least, finding yourself quite angry because you're dealing with a lack of food? It happens. And I believe that's God showing us that there's something broken. There's something that He wants to heal. Something that He wants to change. Because that's not the outcome of fasting that He's looking for. Just going through the motions of not eating will not itself soften a hard heart. It will not make us desire to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. It won't have that outcome all in and of itself. So what do we do in our fasting? If we were seeking fasting and want a transformed heart, what do we do then? What do we do if we try this very thing and it just doesn't seem to work, we just get angry? Well, one, confess. Admit there's a problem and give God access to that area that needs healing. If you are fasting and it 
it just produces anger in you, frustration in you? Maybe ask the question of what are you afraid of? Are you afraid that maybe you won't have food to eat after it's all said and done? Probably not the biggest problem we have in our immediate culture. Take that moment to recognize, though, that God can sustain you with what Jesus calls bread from heaven. Another thing you can do is, this is radically important, maybe it should be number one. Ask the Holy Spirit to assist you. The point of the Spirit given to us is to create in us the capacity to do what we otherwise could not do. And three, look around. You should do this even if you don't experience frustration and anger in the midst of fasting. Just look around. Look at fasting, not as a losing of something, but rather a creating of an opportunity. In your experience of hunger pains, imagine those who are close to you and those who are far off that are hungry, and allow your heart to be moved with compassion for them. For a long time in my life, I thought I had experienced hunger. I really thought that I had. And what I realized I experienced was my internal clock telling my stomach to growl to try and get me to eat something because I was so pre-programmed to eat at specific times. I hadn't ever experienced hunger in my entire life until I pursued fasting. And when I experienced hunger for the very first time, it changed me. I was like, oh my goodness, this is what it's like to really be hungry? Changed me. I was moved with compassion, recognizing that that was what people experience in the world that are really hungry. And quite honestly, for a long time, I just figured that was something the people in you know, the two-thirds world experienced. It was those little Ethiopian kids that I saw on TV. That's what hunger was like for them. And then I, I started realizing, and I looked at some statistics for 2011 because they're the most recent ones. And do you know that one in six people, even in the United States, faces hunger on a daily basis? One in six. How many people are in here right now? It doesn't matter. But that's a quite a few people experience hunger. And it's tragically even higher in households with children. 20.6% of households with children deal with food insecurity and hunger. 20.6% of households in the United States. I implore you, if you can, if you've never fasted until you're actually hungry before, do it. And think. Don't just do it as some kind of religious practice. Do it and think. Ask questions about where does food fit in my life? Ask questions about am I thankful for the one who provided this food for me? And ask the questions about how can I maybe say no to food today so somebody else can eat? Because that's part of what Isaiah is getting at, right? Or part of what God is getting at through Isaiah. If we give it a chance, feeling hungry can help us grow in empathy for those who are hungry. And as we grow in empathy, we can become active participants in the pursuit of what is right and what is good. Mercy and justice. How we address those problems exactly is manifold 
it's, it is more than just giving the food that you would have eaten to somebody else. As a matter of fact, it's not always just about giving someone food. But I'll tell you, that is a good start. This I can say for certain. God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven cares about providing for the needs of those who are lacking nourishment. And for those of us living in abundance, fasting can help us recognize that need. Man, we live in such abundance. We live with access, not just to great food, but to clean drinking water and so many other amazing things. Let us not lose sight of how many other people have need and don't have access to those very same things. Let us be moved with compassion. Let us be moved with mercy. Let us be empowered to pursue justice. Let us experience a little bit of what some of those things are like in our lives. Let us deny ourselves and take up our crosses that others might experience life. I have a couple of quick closing words on how to get started. Probably not tonight. I'm just saying, right? The first thing you should do is (laughs) ask your doctor if you're healthy enough for fast. (laughs) Somebody got that, right? Please, somebody tell me they got that. It's a good idea to ask. <laughs> a couple of people did. <laughs> it's probably a good idea to ask your doctor, unless you know that you're just really healthy. The next tip I'll give you is don't act miserable. <laughs> don't complain. Absolutely. Don't. doesn't go anywhere well. Don't act miserable. As Jesus says, put oil on your head. Don't let everybody else know what's going on. Be joyful in the experience. It's not always going to be easy, but be joyful. Start slowly. The first time I ever fasted in my life, I just ate one meal a day for a little while and eased myself into it. After that, I did my first 24-hour fast. And in that, I felt hunger pains. Like I mentioned earlier, they weren't real hunger. It wasn't real hunger. It was just that clock internal that I had said to eat at noon every day and at five every day and at nine every day or whatever it was. Remember that your stomach is trying to control you. (laughs) You can have mastery over it. Resist compulsion. What worked for me and what works for me is to imagine hungry people in the world and think about my stomach as a Spoiled child grumbling. Spoiled child does not need indulgence. (laughs) Spoiled child needs discipline. Don't give in to the spoiled child that is your stomach. You are to be the master of your stomach, not its slave. Remember, you are seeking to fast unto God and see how He changes you through the experience To become more like Jesus, full of grace and truth. If you have any other questions about fasting, I've got some great resources for it. And I need to throw this out there too. I know that there's probably 
few people in the room that just physically cannot do it. They have a medical condition that allows them to not fast. In that case, then, there are plenty of other things I would suggest you try your cell phone. <laughs> there are other things that we can, we can substitute. Again, that's not quite at the heart of what's going on in Scripture, but nonetheless, it can produce many of the same things in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for things like fasting, not eating. Father, I pray as maybe a few in our congregation decide to pursue this form of, of discipline in their lives. I pray that you would be with them through it. I pray that they would experience your presence with them and the bread that satisfies from heaven. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help them discover all the more how their life is ordered. I pray that they would grow in their ability to give thanks for the good things that they have received, recognizing they come from you, and realizing just what they're capable of, that all of us are capable of so much more through your strength than we can imagine. And most of all, Heavenly Father, I would pray that it would yield a harvest of justice and mercy in people's lives. I pray that you would open people's eyes, Lord Jesus, to, to see the great need right here in our own community and throughout our world. Let us see, Lord Jesus, how your kingdom has come right into our midst and is desiring to, to meet the needs of those that are, are going without, not by choice, but because they just don't have enough. So Father, we thank you. We praise you. Do with us what you will. Amen.